To a women's club in Fremont. Uh, actually, it's one of the oldest clubs in Fremont. It was established in 1896. And so at that time, women were into doing clubs and all sorts of things like that. And uh, I thought, well, I had to prepare a talk for them. And at the time, I had a videotape that my other granddaughter made when she was in the fifth grade uh, and asked me some questions uh, about the internment. And I took it to San Jose, uh, the Japanese center down across Wesley Church on 5th Street. And so she videotaped me while I was doing that program, so I was able to relay that. But I wrote it down, and I've given it a couple times since, so I didn't really stress out about preparing anything because it was already done. So I thought this should be a piece of cake. But I did do some preparation for this event anyway, and I took some um, some documents that I had in in, in cellophane, and I had them uh, collated and put it together and put it in a booklet form so anybody could pick it up and look at it. So if you want to go ahead, Kathleen, and show it to them as I talk, you're welcome to do that. Uh, so I did do that. And the other thing I did, I went to the, uh, the National Museum in uh, Washington, D.C., but uh, someone had sent it to me in 2012 and on the internet and luckily I had downloaded and had kept all those pictures in color in springtime because when I went at one time it was bleak the flowers had not bloomed around the a memorial so what I downloaded I was able to reproduce and put that also in a booklet form and that's really nice because you can't always be there when the flowers are in bloom the cherry blossoms so that's one of the things I started to do but anyway I broke my little talk into three sections. One was uh, pre-camp, one was camp, and the other was a sort of summary. And I kind of, it's not a long speech. I said, 15 minutes? Got to be kidding, Marianne. That's all I can give you. And she says, that's okay, whatever it is. And so here it is. The Interment by Michiko Inoyi. Precap. Michiko did not know how old she was, but on December 23, 1941, she would be turning seven, having been born on that date in 1934 in a town called Santa Maria. Her parents had moved several times in order to provide for the growing family of five, back and forth from Santa Maria to Santa Paula. But now the family was living in Santa Barbara, the last town she would be living in before going to camp. Her earliest memories seemed to start there. She remembers that birthday sitting at a little cafe, the blue light, in one of the booths that her parents, Yusaburo and Kyo Ino, operated at that time. Did she have cake? She can't remember. There must have been something to eat. After all, that is what people do when they sit in a cafe, don't they? She does remember that she received a doll that birthday, or was it Christmas? But the doll on the shelf and the cafe, 
and she probably did not get to play with it. Because her birthday was so close to Christmas, it was hard to remember if it was a birthday or Christmas present, but that was the only birthday she could ever remember having as a child. She doesn't remember whatever happened to the doll, but never made it to camp. But later on, she would write to her cousin, who lived in Colorado at the time, and said, please send me a bride doll, because that's what she wanted to have. Living in Santa Barbara, she could recall moments listening to the stories on the radio that her brothers liked. Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy, Flash Gordon, The Shadow, and others. You're not old enough to remember those. She remembers going down to the corner store where a Chinese store was located and buying dried ginger and stripping it away to eat. Oh yes, she would often go to the theater in town with her brothers so she could see the serials or movies that played. The memory that made an impression was fiesta time, when the parade go by with the Spanish men, horses and the beautiful senoritas. There was so much color, food booths, and music. I think there must have been where she had heard the beer barrel polka for the first time. Such a happy, sunny, and carefree time, it seems, as she looks back. This is a break. By order of the Attorney General Francis Biddle of 1227-41, Michiko's parents had to turn in a Kodak autographic, a silvertone all-wave radio, and a sunbeam camera that came to the Santa Barbara Police Department dated 1229-41. She doesn't remember much that must have occurred then in the early months of 1942, but there is a document from the State Board of Equalization stating that Keo mother, Eno, her mother, was denied application of a beer license because the applicant was an American-born Japanese person who lost her citizenship by marrying a Japanese alien prior to 1931 and because it was close to a church. And that was dated January 15, 1942. That was right after Pearl Harbor. On March 2nd, 1942, the United States government ordered all persons of Japanese extraction, citizen and alien alike, removed from the West Coast solely on the basis of race and locked in inland relocation camps. Thus began the mass evacuation of about 120,000 men, women, and children, two-thirds of them American citizens. No charges were ever filed against them. No hearings were ever held as to their loyalty. They simply ordered out of their homes and escorted behind barbed wire by army troops. On March 24, 1942, her parents were granted an enemy alien permit to travel. I think we were supposed to have gone to La Junta, Colorado, where my aunt lived, but apparently we never made it there because the Civilian Exclusion Order Number 35 Notice, dated May 1942, was distributed and posted on telephone posts and billboards. A personal property form dated May 10, 1942, lists 29 individual units of property that were packaged and were placed in storage at a warehouse at 1025 Chapala Street in Santa Barbara. Following the sequence of events having been denied the beer license from the state, Kia would receive correspondence regarding the check that had been paid in the amount of 1875, which doesn't sound like very much, but in those days I think it was quite a bit. Anyway, dated May 14, 1942, and again in June 
11th. These are all documents that I recorded, so there would be some validity to what I'm saying. Further correspondence dated June 15th stated that now they have her current address and are closing the check. Now we're in camp. Perhaps it was in Tulare Assembly Center where she remembered seeing the barbed wire fences and the military guards in the towers above the encampment. Lines of people in suitcases, boxes, and other items that the internees could manage to carry with them. Michiko had never driven, ridden in a train before. The trip to Gila Rivers in Rivers, Arizona seemed endless, and the click-clack of the train on the train made it one continuous rhythmic clicking. Arriving in Phoenix near their destination, her mother purchased a little bead moccasin pin that she would attach on her coat. She kept that little treasure for a long time, and as time went by, it got lost in the shuffle of everyday life of living and sorting and cleaning. Life settled down to a series of adventures for her in camp. She'd rock while in the camp and visit other blocks. Oh, I don't know. There must have been 68 blocks or 72 blocks. I remember walking from one end of the town to the other, or, or the camp. No one to monitor her. She was apparently free to roam at will. Where could you go? The desert was all about, and if you went far enough, there's barbed wire all around. It was hot, sometimes so hot she'd get a bleeding nose, and there's always a mess. Her father would massage the back of her neck. Did it help? She can't remember. But that was a usual procedure, and perhaps sometimes she'd walk around with an umbrella. I guess those roamings occurred during the summer when there was no school. Her father was a cook in the camp, and in a document dated March 16, 1943, states that Yusabra no longer wanted to be a cook in the mess hall. <laughs> or on occasion, she'd go with some friends on a ride to on the G truck. And I said, what did the G truck stand for? And I thought, government truck? And someone said, garbage truck. We'd hop the garbage truck, and we'd go to the camp that was a couple miles away. There was a common barrack for the bathroom facilities and for the washing of clothes. All I can say, the cement floor was great to play jacks with. You bounce the ball, the jacks would just go on the cement floor. That was a lot of fun. There were no doors on the lavatories, and I remember some women were really embarrassed about it all. As children, I guess, we didn't always realize what the older generation had to endure. The cement floors were really nice to play. The balls would bounce and would, could play cherries in the basket very easily. You people don't know what jacks are, do you? Actually, I did play jacks in the bathroom floor with my youngest son, Marianne's father, when he was in first, second grade. You didn't know that, did you? Anyway, in the evenings when it was cooler, the children on the block would play kick the can. Do you know what that is? Hide and seek? Ali Ali oxen free. Did you not play those at summer camps or anything? It was the first time I was introduced because we lived in a city in Santa Barbara and we didn't get to play things like that. We didn't have enough people to get a team to play, for it, which I think was really dangerous when you think about blocking arms and people trying to crash through. It's a dangerous game. There was a picnic during a holiday, or was it spring and summer? 
before it got too hot. There were baseball games, bon odoris, other activities. There were canteens where people could buy items, toiletries, fabrics. And then there was school. Mexico must have started school in the fall of 1942, as her report card shows grade two, term ending June 25, 1943. The War Relocation Authority had these brown cardboard-looking report cards. Her mother saved every report card she ever had. There were report cards for the third grade and fourth grade also. Mrs. Margaret Fillerup was her second grade teacher, and Mrs. Mary Verse Sparks, her third grade and Mr. Tsutsumita, fourth grade. She remembers the second grade when she had to go up to the blackboard. She was very timid and afraid she didn't know the answer, so no wonder she disliked going up to the front of the classroom. It's very intimidating when you're very young and you're asked to stand in the front of the class, in front of the children your own age, and you don't know what you're supposed to do. I think it's really frightening. In the third grade, she remembers playing baseball, arithmetic. Have you ever played that? And it was fun. She discovered that she liked knowing the answers, so when the fourth grade Mr. Tutsumita would have the math game, she would always be one of the first to raise her hand. It was always fun if you knew the answer, and I guess that hasn't changed. If you know the answer in class, you're not afraid to put up your hand. One of her memories that she had, but she was always skinning her knees and twisting her ankle. And before she ever got home from school, she always had to run to the bathroom before she did anything else. One of those things, you put everything off to the last minute. Sometime after July 25, 1945, Michiko and her family moved to Colorado where her aunt and uncle would provide work and housing for their family. And another document, and another document by the Department of Interior of the War Relocation Authority, a statement of economic resources showed that the family had $15 in currency. The family had assets totaling to $117.75. Deducted from monetary allowance for a family of six or more to be 300, and left a balance of $182.25 for the family to start out a new life. This document was dated July 12, 1945, and stated that the family was to leave the center on that day to travel to La Junta, Colorado to work on the farm for Mr. K. Hiracato. Another document states that travel had been permitted by the Department of Justice and that any travel thereafter could take place only with the permission of the U.S. Attorney in the Judicial District of La Junta, Colorado. Early in 1943, the War Department created an Army Regiment made up of Nisei volunteers. Hundreds of volunteers from the relocation centers and from Hawaii joined to form the most celebrated Japanese American 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Their motto was Go For Broke, which in the Hawaiian slang means shoot the works or go for all, for all for nothing. 
they went on to become the most decorated unit of their size for the length of service in the American military history. There were valiant in battle, 18,143 individual decorations, 9,486 casualties, and seven presidential distinguished unit citations. Minchko's uncle Jimmy served in the famous 442nd. Another family member, Aunt Sue Kumagai, distinguished herself by raising her status to that of colonel, having served a total of 28 years in Japan, Germany, and Vietnam. Post-war. During the winter of Michiko's sixth grade education, her family moved back to the West Coast, settling in a town called Guadalupe, a small farming community just miles of the city where she was born, Santa Maria. Traveling during the Christmas break, she recalls passing through Bakersfield and marveling at the lights and the trees still lit for the holiday, and in amazement thought, they have Christmas here. She eventually graduated from the eighth grade in Guadalupe and finished up her high school years in Santa Maria. After the war years, Michiko's oldest brother joined the military years, becoming what was then called the 90-day wonder. He became a commissioned officer, second lieutenant in the Air Force. Her three brothers, Sabro, Jero, and Cheryl, served the U.S. Army and Marines. Gambate, it's, don't pronounce it quite right, but it's a Japanese term used to describe perseverance under adverse conditions, to try with all your strength, to overcome an intolerable situation, a rallying cry in sports, or in pressure situations. To me, the history of internment, that in spite of all odds, and what the Japanese American people on the West Coast were subject to, that they have come out and returned to achieve even greater heights of dignity and courage. Thank you for this opportunity to share this story. I would never think that anyone would be interested in my experiences, nor even volunteer to do such a thing. But when I'm asked to do so, I will not shirk. I cannot speak for others, but my life today for which I'm truly grateful, has to include this experience. I believe that God had a plan for my life, and this was it. In, in camp, I became acquainted with the Christian religion. My parents, neither being Buddhist or non or Shintoism, they never said yay or nay, never said you can or cannot do. They let me free to choose my life. And they let me, they never encouraged me, never said couldn't do it, didn't say do it. But he always said, my father always said, don't ever spit up in the eye of heaven because it will come back down to you. Then the other thing he said, if you were going to be a garbage person, a man, a woman, he said, be the best that you could do. Well, I do have to say that I, through that experience in becoming a Christian, 
Later on, it kind of kept me focused on what I wanted out of life. I met my husband at the Wesley Methodist Church. We were married there. And as a result, I had three wonderful children. One is Mary Ann's dad, being the youngest. Then my oldest son is a major general in the U.S. military. He works right now in the Pentagon. My daughter, my only daughter, is works with the Methodist Women's Ministry in Houston, Texas. So my children are sort of scattered right now, but I have to say that I've had a wonderful life in spite of all of that. Thank you very much. And I did make some copies, not for, to keep, but to peruse. The National Japanese American Memorial is right close to the White House. And in the springtime, you should go sometime. The cherry blossoms are wonderful. The cherry blossoms, this is my fourth year there uh, to in March, April, to see the cherry blossoms. They are spectacular. I think it has the listings of the 10 camps that where uh, most of us were in, you know, incarcerated in. And uh, one of the interesting things, I put out an article on Norman Mineta, who was the mayor of San Jose for a few years. The interesting thing about it, when we went, when I went to the church that I was married in, in Wesley, he also attended there. But at that time, his job was an insurance agent, and he was my insurance man. So on occasion, I had the chance to see him in Washington when I went to visit my, my son. But anyway, feel free to ask questions. I'm sure I could answer them however you want. Thank you. <laughs> what was your most memorable experience at the camp? Well, you know, um, because my parents were Japanese, my mother was born in Colorado, and she was a citizen. Uh, we didn't have a lot of cultural things early on. You know, they were hard pressed to go to work and provide for a family. My sister, of course, was born in camp. I forgot to mention that. Um, but my favorite, I don't know that there could be anything called favorite. It was hot. <laughs> uh, well, memorable. I got a spanking from my father. I was being real sassy, I think. And I think I was in the second or third grade, and I didn't want to do something or I had to do something. I might have talked back to my mother, but he got after me and gave me a whack. So I kind of remember that. So I kind of wasn't too disobedient after that. <laughs> I think all you need is one good whack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But playing jacks on the cement floor was kind of fun. You know, I had to play jacks on a, on a wood floor. It's not the same as cement. Then you get the crunch of the jacks, throw them on the floor and have the bounce really good. It's kind of fun, you know. Those are the things I remember. Oh, I had a friend named Helen who lived next door, and I always thought she was much older. Well, she wasn't much older. She might have been junior high, but I was in the third grade, so she could have been like 12, or 13, or 14, but I thought she was high school. But she wasn't that old very much. But then a couple of years ago, I thought, I'm going to look up Helen. We'd lost touch. She used to write. And come to find out that when I looked her up on the Internet, uh, I found her brother, 
whose name was Kurt. And Kurt worked in the library in up north, up by Novato. And I made a contact with him. He was more friends with my brother. And so he came on down and I took him around and we kind of shared some things. And he told me his sister had passed on. I thought, too late. We do things too late. But she used to fix, curl my hair and do all that girl stuff. And that was kind of fun. But uh, life was just one thing after the other, you know. Life just went on. You walked around the camp, went as far as you could. And I thought, gee, my mother never says anything. Just come and go. And I guess she just figured I wasn't going to go anyplace with the barbed wires around us. But, you know, we'd go hang out and see what was going on in a different camp and and just kind of walk around and make friends. What else was there to do, you know? There was school, and, of course, during school time, but, like, any other school, you have breaks. So what do you do when there's break? I mean, you don't have your own room. You, you're, you're in one long building with sections, with wood sections. So A, B, C, D, there were four sections for, for homes. For a family of six or five, you would five or six, seven beds crowded into one section, and maybe curtains, the sheets for curtains or in between. Uh, never didn't want to spend your time in the house. After all, what would you do? Just nothing but beds, and you ate. You ate in a mess hall, so you didn't need cooking facilities or anything like that. Um, yeah, but uh, oh, we went to vacation Bible school. I mentioned that became a Christian, so I learned about Zacchaeus. And so we learned a song about Zacchaeus. And in one of the camps, we sang, we attended, thank goodness for Christian uh, evangelists, that they came and took care of the children during the summer. We had projects that we made. We learned about the Bible. And that was my first exposure to Christianity. And that has made all the difference, all the difference. I decided when I was in high school, what kind of life did I want to lead? And I thought, definitely, this Christian religion had so much more to offer than anything that I knew at the time. And so, I guess in growing up, I kind of, not modeled, but I kind of went in this direction thinking, I think that's the way I want to live my life. What do you want out of this life? And one of the books that I read in high school was something called Covadas. It's an old book, Q-U-O-V-A-D-A-S. It's a Latin term, and it means, where are you going, Lord, or where are you going? And so I applied that to my life. Where do I want to go in my life? And that was the thought that kind of, kind of brought me to the church. I did a lot of things with the church activities. I met my husband at the church. He came to the church that I was attending in San Jose, and after a couple of years, we were married. But he never finished high school either. I didn't say either. He never finished high school. I will say this about him. He was very persistent, and I thought when I first met him, he was a person I didn't really want to go around with. 
I thought, why would I want to go with this man? He was telling me about his life. And the first thing he told me, he said he was married, had children. I thought, I don't want to get involved with somebody like that. No way. And then after a while, I kind of learned about his life and how she had left him and took the children and moved out of the area. And his father, they were Chinese, very jokingly said to him, why don't you go find yourself a Japanese woman? <laughs> so he came to the Japanese church that I was going to. Now, whether he was serious or just joking, I don't know. But that made a difference in his life, I guess. Working together with him, he decided to go back to school, go back to San Jose City College to get his high school diploma because he never finished high school. He was, a, he was a very good musician. He played the clarinet. But when he wanted to become a teacher in, um, in, in California, the teachers all said, you have to go to Hawaii to get a job because you're Chinese. No one would hire you here. Things are so different 70 years later, right? But at that time, he said, well, why go to school then? So he just dropped out and went to work at the um, China Aircraft in Santa Monica. And I guess he lived there for a few years and learned the trade. But when he came back, he went into being a grocery clerk and knew how to cut chicken up, a butcher. I remember when we first got married, he said, why did you pay 31 cents for the chicken when you can buy it for 29 cents uncut? And I said, I don't know how to cut up chicken. He says, well, I do. So after that, I let him cut up the chicken. I bought it for 29 cents. <laughs> I thought I didn't know he could do that. I didn't know I could do it either. I knew nothing about housekeeping. One of the interesting things about my husband, that he persevered. And he went to San Jose State after two years, and he graduated from his, this university. One of the most interesting things about this man, as uneducated he was when I met him, um, in 15 years, he got, before that, he, after he graduated, we were married during that time, we moved up to Fremont, and after 15 years of teaching, he became the first Asian to become the California State Teacher of the Year in 1988. At that time, there was only one Teacher of the Year in all of California, and you figure all the teachers he had one teacher in Wyoming, which maybe had one-tenth of the population teachers. So when you have someone as brilliant as he was, but because he didn't have the education way back when, he just dropped out of school and just became a grocery clerk. And he was happy. He liked to fish, and he could go fishing every Wednesday. Uh, he was happy with his life. But after I met him, then he became so engrossed. It was always work. It was always about school, always about what can I do for the children. He really enjoyed it to the extent when we were in church, he'd be writing notes. And I thought, oh, this man is really interested in the gospel. I shouldn't tell the story. But he might be listening, too. But he, he was writing down things he had to do when he got home. He had a little list, little list. Even if it was to go to the post office, he wrote that down. But anyway, considering his background and his perseverance, but I always wondered how this simple person became so great 
and he just was really dedicated to the work that he wanted to do with the work with children. Wonderful, wonderful. But he always read. I thought, my goodness. I had to help him with his English. When he had to write papers, he says, can't you look this over? I had to do his typing. He says, I don't know what to say. And his English was bad. I hate to say it. But I don't know, I don't know how he ever made it. He got through San Jose State. He got through City College with C's. B pluses, but to become one of the most celebrated and recognized teachers for the state of California, he had to have something else besides just simple, common, uneducated grammar. Uh, I have to think that, uh, what was it that he did? I thought to myself, what is it that he is able to command a group of people and talk for hours without notes? He could do that. He was asked to give lectures and workshops throughout the state of California after he became recognized. And I thought to myself, whatever he reads, he knows what to do with it. But how many of us know things and don't know how to use it? I think that was the difference when I stopped to analyze what this person was like. But trouble is, you'd always don't tell those things to your spouse, do you? What were the differences between your experiences as a young person compared to those of who are a little older than you or the older generation? My mother never talked about it. My father never talked about it. Never complained. She was truly a wonder woman. Consider her background and and growing up, you know, and not and married at sixteen and having two children every long, and two children later, she had six altogether. I never ever heard a complain. And she had to live under the harshest conditions. You talk about pioneer woman, she was one of them. She drew water from a well to wash her clothes. My father had to heat up the, the wash tub so she could wash the clothes in warm water when we lived in Colorado, there was no running water, of course. We lived in the country. And the Japanese have what's called fudo. If you've been to Japan, maybe some of you know that. A big common tub where everybody gets in. You wash yourself, get yourself in. So my father, every night, would have to heat that. But he was fairly uneducated in terms of that. He came when he was 15 years old from Japan. And the most thing that you can say about your parents, that they survived. But they also, as probably poor as we were, we never felt poor. Why? Because we had the tension and the care from our parents. We always had food. We had a place to sleep. So you young people, what's poor and what's rich? I have no clue. But you should know that security comes from the attention your parents give you. And if by chance you happen to be a child that didn't have that opportunity, there should be no reason why you in turn couldn't become that kind of a person to give your love to your partner and to your children. People should never say, excuse, I wasn't given that. That's no excuse. So as someone who's done a lot of their graduate school research on the Japanese community, Japanese American community, particularly how it's changed after World War II, I just wanted to know 
what the sentiment was and the feeling was when you came back to California after internment. Um, we lived, we moved a lot. The last town that I was first, second grade, I lived in Santa Barbara and it was a neighborhood of people just growing up. I hung around with my older brothers, we'd go to the movies or something like that. But we did have a, a, a social group like you kids have grown up in homes that lived in neighborhoods for quite a few years maybe, you know, five, ten years. So if you're lucky, you live there most of your lives. I was never that fortunate. I was moved from home to home. So I didn't have a neighborhood complete except camp. We played together and that was different. But my feelings are quite different from an older person, like a 17-year-old kid or woman or a mother or father that had to endure those things. Their lives, they never talked about those things, never. I think it was embarrassing. It was hard to imagine. It's humiliating. You don't talk about those things. So they're all very quiet. They did their own thing. They told their children to do what they could do, go to school, become a doctor, you know, improve yourself, get a good job, provide for your family. That was the Asian way. I'd say Chinese are that way too. Um, most ethnic groups come here for a better life. And that's what they encourage and instill in each one of you children. If you come from a different, um, uh, different ethnicity, your parents want a better life for you. They sacrifice for you. They give up. But um, there are some people whose lives much, were much worse. They might have been treated as an older person or an adult. Maybe in some camps they got rough treatment. And I can only say that each person is different. And some have reason to say why it was so bad. But I never suffered those. I can't share those because I can't speak for that. But I know those things have happened. It's like the Nazi camps. There's no comparison, of course. You know, none of, none of us, I shouldn't say, most of us weren't treated to that point. So there's a difference in, in war prisoners, in war camps. And we weren't in a war. We were in a war, but it was not on our land. Thankfully, you know, the young people here have not had to live the life that other people had to live in different countries where the war has really torn them apart. You have, uh, but one thing, it is a good country. It may not be the best in your eyes. There's always room for improvement. But you know, what will you do to make it better instead of condemning a government, instead of putting your hand up and saying, I hate America. You don't do this. You don't do that. That may be true, but by the same token, what is that person doing to make it better? You hear about people protesting. I, I'm sure there are reasons why. And people have done injustices to different races. I, I know that. And some people have taken different methods. In the, um, in the, the JACL commentaries, and one man said, I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud of what I am. I believe in the system, and I can hope to make it better by following the right way, the proper way. But I think everybody should read some great thoughts, and I'm particularly impressed 
by what the Japanese American people have done with this memorial, and on the tablets of stone, have written great thoughts of Daniel Inoue, Norman Mineta, Mike Masaoka, the people that have fought for redress. That's only one portion of the country that sought that sort of an apology from the government. And I'm sure there are many others that are just as worthy. If you're part of that group, you should fight for that, I think. I can't speak for everybody, but I just know what I can say for myself, how I feel about things. And there are many injustices and many adults, the parents, the Issei's that have gone from this world can attest to that. The government did did apologize, and in 1980, I have it written somewhere in the books, that the government actually, Ronald Reagan started, and who was it that uh, wrote the formal letter? The bill was passed when Ronald Reagan was president, and that they felt that they wanted to honor the heroes of the Japanese American Army, but then when they came to the conclusion of a memorial, they didn't do it just for that, they did it for the for the, um, it was justice, it wasn't just, it was, it's written on the thing there, on one of the booklets, patriotism, that they stood for the patriotism, that in spite of everything, the people that were incarcerated and the soldiers that served, all that made up the memorial, not just one portion of it. So that's what it was. How was going to school during that time? Well, as a youngster, nine, ten, you know, you don't think about the injustices. You don't think about anything like that. You're a child. You play. You know, you obey your parents. Whatever they told me to do, I did. And whatever they didn't tell me, I did anyway. I <laughs> saw so, kids are kids. But I wasn't serious about my thoughts. I wasn't that kind of a thinker then. I don't know that I am today, but, you know, as a child, you play a lot, you have fun, go out with your friends. I learned how to play MJ, Rummy, stuff like that. It's kind of fun. I play MJ now, now that I have time. It's always a lot of fun. Don't play for money, just play for scores, <laughs> chips, stuff like that. But I'm sure most of you, if you were children at that time, would enjoy playing. You forget, you know, it's only when you grow up and have to make a living, you know, how does this affect your children as a parent? How do you feel about those things? Right, Marianne? Your kids have it easy. <laughs> I think that you're probably the age, what's called the millennials. I'm not sure, but it's, to me, when someone says millennials and they describe what it is, I think, how wrong, how wrong. They tell me that the millennials generation expect things. I thought, what a wrong thing to live in life, to expect everything is for you. How wrong. It should be about giving. Giving in this life, not taking or expecting. I deserve this, it should be for me. It's such a wrong attitude. I'm sorry. I'm too old. I'm too old. I'm too old. You probably disagree with me anyway. But so be it.
But my husband would always tell me, don't take life too seriously. He says, you'll never get out of it alive. <laughs> so on a happier note, don't take life too seriously, but serious enough to determine which and how you're going to live your life. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why I think I can give this talk, because now I'm old enough. I've been through enough that I think I can say that. How you live your life, the path that you choose, it's an important thing you do right now in your life, will determine the outcome of how you want your life to be. And if you have a family, what do you want from your family? What do you want your family to be? You guys probably not married yet. Someday you will be. And when you do, you're going to say, what do I want in life? Thank you, and I think that's it. You're always free to ask questions later on, but maybe just <laughs> taken back about this this old grandma talking. <laughs> My grandma. Listen, listen carefully.